Killer Conspiracies, a Utah true crime podcast with Kobe and Brian. I killed her. Now that time I tied him up. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. I was saving body parts such as uh, skulls. As well as cannibalizing and raping their headless bodies. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Just me again today. I'm going to do kind of a mini episode. I'm going to probably tell two stories. The first one is about a distant relative of mine that I got permission from my grandma to talk about, as it's her cousin. And my cats are fighting right next to me while I'm in my chair, and I'm getting really angry at them. Anyway, so the first story, I'll be talking about my grandma's cousin, who is a Utah State Patrol. Okay. Um, I don't know much about him or the family he left behind. I didn't want to ask my grandma too much since we were having Thanksgiving dinner. But I'm going to try and do my best for this episode. So let's get on into the show. His full name is Ray Lee, Ray Wynn Pearson, but he would go by his middle name. He joined the Utah Highway Patrol on January 7th, 1974. Who He had followed his fa- in his father's footsteps, Sergeant Dean Pearson who had been a member of the UHP since August 1959. Lynn was assigned to the Heber Port of Entry. In September 1976, he transferred to the field and resided in Moab. On November 5th, 1978, he transferred to his hometown of Pankiewicz. I should have looked that up before I started because I don't know if I spelled that right or pronounced it. For the first two days of his new assignment, Lynn used the statewide radio frequency. He had scheduled an appointment with Al Higgs, who was a radio engineer, to install crystals for the Richfield UHP frequency the afternoon of November 7th. Earlier that same day, Richfield Dispatch broadcasted an attempt to locate a blued Ford, blue Ford pickup with a white camper shell involved in running from a gas station after not paying. It, it was called a gas skip, but I'm assuming it's just he filled up and then left from the Texaco station at Cove Fort. The broadcast was never received by Trooper Pearson. He was patrolling State Road 20, a connecting road between US 89 and I-15 north of Pangoich. He apparently stopped the wanted vehicle for a minor traffic violation. He did not know that the vehicle was stolen from Montana and that the driver was a fugitive from Illinois. 
The driver, who was a felon, was in possession of a stolen 357 Magnum revolver. Trooper Pearson approached the vehicle in his normal manner. As Trooper Pearson reached the driver's window, the driver fired, striking Trooper Pearson in the heart. Pearson managed to fire six rounds from his 357 service revolver as the felon sped away. The first individual that came upon the crime scene found the police radio and called into it saying, This is Deloy Emmett from Cedar City. I am about three miles west of US 89 on Highway 20 and there is an officer shot badly. It looks like he might be dead. Oh, I, I forgot, I did forget one line. When the driver shot at him, he shot him right in the heart. This transmission was copied by different troopers to the Richfield UHP as well as Garfield County Sheriff Keith Fackrell and a lot of different officers responded from these areas to make a roadblock which would be established at Paragona, Paragona. While they were waiting there, the suspect vehicle had approached from the opposite direction. He then made a U-turn and headed towards Beaver with Sergeant Mason, Deputy Williams, and Deputy Adams in pursuit. Several miles into the pursuit, it was obvious that the driver had no intentions of stopping. Several rounds were fired into the vehicle by both deputies. A second roadblock was quickly assembled on the outskirts of Beaver. Officers at this roadblock included many officers from Beaver County Sheriff's Department and Beaver Police Department. As the suspect approached this roadblock, he accelerated. It was clear that he had intended to run into the blockade. Just prior to striking a patrol car that was blocking the road, several officers opened fire. The suspect vehicle struck the Beaver City police car and then ran off the road through a fence. Officers later counted 87 bullet holes in the stolen vehicle. Five of these rounds were identified as coming from Trooper Pearson's weapon. Eleven bullet holes were in the windshield. Despite this gunfire a number of rounds, the suspect only sustained a single gunshot pellet wound to the head, which was not life-threatening. Special Agent Joe Quick of the FBI assisted with the investigation. The suspect would be identified as Brian Keith Stack, who was 18 at the time. Later that day, Stack admitted to Sergeant Mason that he had killed the trooper. He pled guilty to a first-degree murder charge on July 19, 1979, in exchange for a life sentence, rather than a chance rather than chance a death sentence if it went to trial.
Trooper Lynn Pearson was only 29 at the time of his death. He was survived by his pregnant wife Darlene, his two sons Clint and Brett, and a daughter Jenny. On January 31, 1979, Darlene gave birth to their fourth child, a daughter named Laura Lynn. And so that's, you know, they had sentenced him, and that was the end of the story. But when I was talking to my grandma about covering this case, she told me that the man who shot him was actually released. So I did some research on him, so I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about him. So he had served more than 40 years in prison for the shooting in 1978. He was released on parole in February of 2020. At this time he was 60 and was arrested after making contact via a popular media application with a person he thought was a girl younger than 14. The girl was actually an undercover detective. According to a probable cause statement filed in the 3rd District Court in Salt Lake County by a police officer, Stack reached out to the girl on January 2nd. And it says Brian was advised the female was under the age of 14 early in the conversation, but he had continued to message. He, Brian continued the message conversation and eventually began to request sexual acts from the girl. Oh, sorry, I did forget to mention this. This was in 2021, so less than a year that he, that he was released. <coughs> Excuse me. Stack requested nude photos from the female, suggested that he take the photos of her, and he had sent her several photos of his micro penis. The affidavit states that's not what it states. I'm just assuming he has a micro penis. It says genitals, but you know me, I like to make jokes. On the 21st, of January 2021, Brian arranged to meet the female at the track station at 1300 South 180 West. When he arrived, he was taken into custody. According to the document which Stack admitted after being read his Miranda rights to knowing the age of the female and talking to her about sex. At the time of his arrest, he had only been on parole for less than a year. So, and as far as I could tell, I couldn't see any, like, trial updates or anything. But he would be charged with no bail for enticing a minor by internet or text, a second-degree felony, dealing in materials harmful to a minor, a third-degree felony, sexual exploitation of a minor, a third-degree felony. Now, I'm not sure why they would even release him anyway if he had a life sentence, because I feel like he should have just, I mean, he shouldn't have done it in the first place, obviously, but, yeah, I don't know. So, I'm looking it up. 
and I'm not seeing um, any court updates or anything, but I will keep an eye out, we will update you guys. Hopefully I did this episode some justice for my family's a new Lynn, because clearly I'd never met him. I wasn't born until 1996, but it's just really sad, you know. He's just a young guy with, a, with some kids, and can't be easy. Okay, and so for the next episode, since this one's only 12 minutes, um, let's see, I have a couple of different stories I've already written. So, sorry, let me scroll down. I don't want to do the whole Ivan Milat story because that's actually really long. Okay, so I'm going to go to Australia for this one. And this guy is one of the two serial killers from Australia. Like I had told you guys in a previous episode, he would be the one of the inspirations for the Wolf Creek movies and TV series. And if you haven't watched those, get your hand out of your pants and watch those shows and movies because it's fucking amazing. Socks, what the fuck are you doing? I'm trying to record an episode, man. This kitten is a crackhead. So, I'm going to be talking about Bradley Murdoch from Down Under in Australia. I come from a land down under. Women, women, where women clean in the mid-plunder. I don't know how the fucking song goes. Anyway, Murdoch was born on February 19th, 1958, in Western Australia. An unexpected third son. His brothers were 11 and 14 two parents, Colin and Nancy. They lived near Northampton before moving to Perth when he was about 12 years old. He had problems adjusting to city life and would soon be involved in a biker gang. At 15 years old, he left high school and moved back to his hometown of Geraldton where he started becoming involved with more biker gang activities. He had also had his own trucking business but declared bankruptcy in 1983. In around 1980, he met his partner, Diane, who he married in 1984. They would have a son, but they would separate in 1986 due to him beating the ever-loving shit out of her. He was employed as a truck driver and, in quotes, an illicit drug smuggler. And he would admit in court to smuggling a shit ton of cannabis, a.k.a. Sticky Sticky, a.k.a. um, the Devil's Lettuce a.k.a. Mary Juana. Anyway, 
So, supposedly he was a white supremacist and had a racist tattoo that I could not find. But in 1998, after release from prison, and I did not write down why he was arrested that first time, I'm guessing domestic violence or running drugs. Um, what is, what are you doing, socks? Okay. Anyway. Sorry, I'm going back to this. After release from prison, he was living in Derby, running drugs and driving road trains. Which, if you don't know what road trains are in Australia, they are just basically huge semis. Because Australia's huge, even though it might not even exist. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh my god. These cats, I swear to god. He then resettled in Broome and running, running drugs to Sedan. So, I am going to take a break for a second and I will be right back with the rest of the story. Alright, I am back from my break. Now we will get into previous criminal charges of... Murdoch, this mega cunt, as they say in Australia, my favorite word, which I said a lot at Thanksgiving and I'm surprised I didn't get yelled at more. In 1980, at the age of 21, he received a suspended sentence by causing a death, a death by dangerous driving, hitting and killing a guy on a motorcycle. November 1995. He started a 20-month imprisonment sentence for a drunken incident, shooting at people. Um, he was released after 15 months. And in 2003, he was charged with two counts of rape of a 12-year-old girl in Southern Australia, but would be acquitted. So, shortly after his acquittal, for the unrelated rape and abduction charges, he would be arrested in 2003 and charged with the murder of Peter Falconio on a remote part of the Stewart Highway near Barrow Creek on July 14, 2001. The trial began October 17, 2005. He pleaded not guilty of murdering Peter and assaulting and attempting to kidnap his girlfriend Joanne. He was convicted. Sorry, I had to cough. He was convicted on December 13th, 2005, for the murder. He would be sentenced to life imprisonment with a non parole period of 28 years. He was also convicted of the assault related charges against his girlfriend. Uh, Peter's girlfriend. December 12th, 2006, he appealed against his life sentence, claiming the evidence was tainted because the girlfriend had seen a photograph of him on the internet before she was interviewed by the police, as well as an article linking him to the murder. The, the appeal was dismissed on January 10th, 2007, 
In mid-August 2007, some sections of the Australian media speculated that Murdoch might soon reveal the whereabouts of his remains, of Peter's remains. The press also mentioned that Murdoch did not enjoy the conditions of the prison on the outskirts of Darwin. So, yeah. Sorry, I have a really bad tickle in the back of my throat. And I did not realize that I did not even write down what happened to Peter Falconio. So, I shall do that here in a second. So just give me uno momento por favor. Because I am still very bad at podcasting. And of course, no matter what I'm looking up, it's bringing up a random football player that I don't give a shit about. Oh god. I'll get good at this one day, one day guys, I promise. I fucking promise. Oh, and here's the thing I just found. He'll be 74 years old and will be eligible for parole in 2032, so I doubt he'll make it till then. So... Okay. Fucking ads. So... Okay, so this is kind of a basic thing. So... Peter, who was a British backpacker, was last seen alive in Australia in 2001, and human remains have been discovered. Peter, who hailed from Hempworth, Hepworth, West Yorkshire, was driving with his girlfriend Joanne Lees in the outback at night when they were halted by Bradley, who was a drug runner, like I had said. He shot and killed Peter before tying up Joanne. During their nighttime drive in the outback, Joanne managed to escape and provided valuable information to identify her boyfriend's killer. Despite an extensive investigation, Peter's body was never discovered. This investigation was considered one of the most thorough in Australia's history. The bone fragments that were discovered recently near Alice Springs will be examined to determine whether they match Peter's DNA and dental records. Despite the fact that the remains were found a few hundred kilometers away from where Peter was shot, this is still considered a relatively close distance given the enormous expanse of the Northern Territory. These findings were made within a 2,000 kilometer range that detectives believed the killer might have disposed of Peter's body. The only highway that connects Alice Springs to the site where Peter and Joanne were attacked is the same one the couple were driving on when the incident happened. So, yeah. um, so 
The discovery of the bone fragments near the Alice Springs may have been a result from a tip-off that was sent to a Southern Australia politician last year. And I did not even look to see when this was. The tipster had reported seeing a vehicle similar to Murdoch's parked in an unusual position on a local road and had informed the police during the initial investigation but, not, but did not receive any follow-up. So, let me see when this article is written real quick. I'm sorry, guys. You know what? I'm not sorry. Fucking, you'll be fine. Just wait a minute. Alright. Okay. This was, oh, this was in February 2023. So, we'll see if we get any updates. Let's see. So yeah, I can't really find any like investigation information on it. So that's kind of annoying. But I'll just leave it there for today. This is just a mini episode anyway. But I'm sure you guys will like it because this podcast is the best podcast that Utah's ever made. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But Either way, that'll be it for today, and we will see you guys tomorrow. Toodles. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Killer Conspiracies. I'm Kobe. That's Brian. Please rate five stars. Follow on Twitter, Instagram at KillerConPod. There's a Facebook group and page, Killer Conspiracies with Kobe and Brian. And if you have any requests or anything, email us at KillerConPod at gmail.com. Please share with all your friends. Thank you. We will see you next week.